0: The podcast will begin in a moment after a message from this week's sponsor.
1: Government relies on innovation. Innovation relies on us. 5G enables big ideas. And we enable 5G. It starts with Qualcomm.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. It's back to school week and the election season kickoff here in Brussels. It's maybe not quite as spicy as Washington DC, where there's a new book out by the Watergate journalist Bob Woodward that really details some of the malfunctioning that is going on inside the white house we're seeing more and more drama circulating there but here in brussels it's been all about whether we're going to have a system called the spitzing candidate system for selecting the next european commission president whether we want a new person who doesn't have experience or we want an old seasoned hand running the european commission and all against the backdrop of jean-claude juncker getting ready for his final state of the union speech In this week's episode, we talk to Dimitris Avramopoulos, who is the European Commissioner for Migration, but also for Citizenship and for Home Affairs, so he's got a big security angle there, and he tells us what he's going to be proposing around the State of the Union next week, and how he handles the very difficult competing needs of people who say human rights is a core value in the European Union, and then how do you control the borders in a way that ensures that Union can stick together and that it doesn't tear itself apart. And then in the panel, we're going to discuss this ongoing saga around how Martin Selmayer became the European Commission Secretary General, and the rather extraordinary report this week of the European Ombudsman, who said that the entire College of Commissioners was guilty of maladministration. First, we talk to Commissioner Avramopoulos. Joining me now on EU Confidential is the European Commissioner for Migration, Citizenship and Home Affairs, Commissioner Avramopoulos. Thanks so much for joining us. The pleasure of mine. So since it is confidential, it will be between you and me. Absolutely, there is no one listening to this conversation whatsoever. So feel free to be very free in your comments. But what I really wanted to do is dive into this issue of migration, not hit it with the the main news headlines, but around all of the questions and the struggles that you have in managing this job, because it's very obviously politically sensitive. And of course, it's something where there needs to be a European solution, but a lot of the operational responsibility, it's in the hands of the member states. So maybe if you can set the context for us a little bit what are you thinking when you come into the office every day and how do you cope with all of these overwhelming stories of human tragedy and all the complications of having to manage it?
1: Well it is not in the hands of member states. It is in the hands of the governments of member states. Governments come and go. The states are there. And uh, the leadership of today should always uh, recall why wise and responsible leaders decades ago made the big decision for their countries to be members of the European family. Now. Because of migration, the basic principles of the European project are in danger. Because some politicians, they have adopted a methodology based on nationalism and populism, and they undermine directly the European values, ignoring that at the end they will be held accountable in the eyes of their citizens in the future. So, yes, there is a problem. Every day I come to my office, I try to see how do they think and what do they say. But the common denominator, even of the ones who oppose to our policy right now, is that they want better management of our borders, more efficient returns of the ones who are not in need of protection to their countries, uh, and uh, a more efficient policy in general. This is what we are trying to do during the last three years. We are not where we were three years ago, I still remember the day I crossed the threshold of this uh, building. And I was in confusion and really agonizing with my people how to set up a policy on migration because the European Union was totally unprepared. And so
0: which parts do you think are working? We know the Turkey deal has really reduced the flow of migrants there. But of course, we still have a lot of people who don't seem very willing to take a share of the burden. And you have countries like Italy complaining very loudly, countries like Greece with a big burden, maybe not complaining so loudly, but still clearly with too much of the burden there. So so which bits are working yes. and which we bits...
1: Have, we have made a great progress in better managing our borders. I'm uh, more than happy to say that it was one of my bets from the very beginning... To see the creation of the European Borders and Coast Guard that very soon will be transformed to in Borders Police. It's not Frontex as we knew it before. Now they have a very strong mandate, they are beefed up, they are given power and financially supported. And I'm very happy to see that our borders are better managed. Remember what, the situ- what was the situation just uh, three years ago? The EU-Turkey statement works, and it worked even during the difficult times of the failed coup d'état in Turkey. And thanks to that, the numbers have gone down. Just to remind you that in the year 2015. More than 13,000, 14,000 people were crossing the Aegean Sea. Now the number have gone down to 50, 60 persons. So the situation is manageable. We have set up the whole spot. We have been supporting member states financially, politically and operationally. In the meantime, we have tried Do we have done more in our relations with third countries. Because finally, this migration phenomenon of our times, it is not an internal problem of Europe. It has taken external dimensions. It has to do with geopolitical instability, with an arc of instability, such as from Tunisia to Ukraine. Some member states, some governments, interpret the term solidarity according to their domestic political narrative. Three years ago, believe me, Ryan, member states were not trusting each other. I was proposing sharing of information and they didn't want to hear about it, but in the wake of all these terrorist attacks, they realized it's very important for European countries to cooperate because if they had started cooperating from the very beginning, some of these tragic events would have been predicted and prevented. Now we are proceeding towards the European, let's say, a security union, which will be the first step for something more concrete in the future. So I believe that we have delivered a lot. We have to work on Dublin. Dublin does not work. Dublin, because everybody speaks about Dublin. What is Dublin? Yeah, so let's
0: answer that, because a lot of people listening won't be familiar with that sort of terminology. But we're talking about the EU agreement that is related to the global agreement on how you decide if someone is a legitimate asylum seeker or
1: not. Exactly, exactly. Dublin as we knew it is dead. Now we need a new Dublin.
0: And would you say the Geneva Convention is dead as well? That it doesn't work anymore?
1: No, the Geneva Convention is the gold spell in managing refugee issues. uh, And we are all bound by that. We cannot... Close borders to the ones who want to come to Europe. Yes, they must respect the rules, the laws, and the legislation of, of Europe. This is what we try to do. And the hotspots we had uh, set up on the islands, they do this job and they do it in a perfect way because right now, 95%, maybe in some cases, 100% of the ones who are crossing our borders, they're immediately fingerprinted, registered, and identified. It's not as uncontrolled as it was in the beginning. Yes, we have problems, in Italy, for instance.
0: But that was very controversial at the beginning. So it's a real change in the system. Remember people complaining very much about the idea that you would fingerprint children, for example.
1: Exactly. But it is the only way to have a controlled and orderly management of migration. Next week, I'm going to present a new package uh, that will beef even more up uh, the European borders and coast guard, especially in the field of returns. So, member states, especially the frontline member states, feel much better protected with our European policy. I was in Spain during uh, the summer. I tried to tell the Italian friends that what we are doing is exactly what they want from us.
0: What about the money side? Because I, I know one of the complaints of Italy is they say they can't afford it. So, can we, through the next EU long-term budget, solve some of those problems? Does the politics get easier if the EU puts more of its money towards this?
1: Uh, right, I want to be frank with you. It's not a question of money. It's a question of basic political and moral principles. Whether we share uh, the same uh, approach on this issue, or we see differently according to what our domestic audience wants to listen. So what I want to tell you, it is very important to understand, and this is the responsibility of the political leadership of Europe, but by opening the door to populism, we undermine the fundamentals of the European Union, I said it in the beginning. As far as uh, the support with the, uh, to these countries, Greece, Italy, Spain, we are there supporting them financially, politically, and operationally. and. Uh, Italy has been, from the very beginning, one of the main beneficiaries of the European uh, policy in addressing mig- migration. The same with Greece. Uh, so I don't understand this complaint. I said recently that the ones who are attacking, the, who are shooting the European Union, is like shooting their feet. Because at the end, we are all Europeans. And what is Brussels? You live here. Brussels is the place where the headquarters of Europe are. But we are all here appointed by our countries to serve the interests of Europe and of our countries at the same time. And this is something that these leaders must understand, that they can be patriots at the same time they are Europeans. But this is the duty of our generation in the eyes of the upcoming generations, to uphold and defend what we have achieved during the last 60 years. Can you imagine yourself living in a Europe with borders again?
0: If I think back about my childhood growing up in Australia, People on the podcast hear this all the time, so apologies to everyone for coming back to it again. But we imagine that the achievement of the European Union was the creation of peace and the removal of borders. Things like the single market, that was the secondary question. It's a
1: very good point. This is what I said from the very beginning. We have to defend and uphold Schengen as the greatest achievement. You know, I belong to a generation where in order to cross Europe from the one top to the other uh, coming back home I had uh, to have my passport replaced because it was full of stamps. And I still remember this uh, checkpoints uh, at all board. And one day I woke up and I felt free to travel around. It is pity for me, uh, Ryan, that Europe stopped its process towards uh, becoming a federal system. Yes, I understand that we all have behind us uh, our national identities, our... Uh, history, our culture, our languages. But this should not be a divisive element because by reverting to the past, we shall revive the old hatred. It is still there, especially in some parts of Europe, like in the Balkans, for instance, where some of the leaders of today were fighters of the civil war. They meet in these conferences and uh, they do not see partners from the other side of the table, but they see enemies. And is then controlling
0: the borders, the way to take the heat out of some of that hatred and those politics, because part of me imagines that control is important, but that there's some other cultural element, there's some other person-to-person discussion that needs to be taking place, because it doesn't seem to me that Salvini will be particularly satisfied. You give him some more money, you demonstrate some more control. He seems to be someone who is going to throughout this election campaign in the next nine months, continue to argue against you and what you're proposing?
1: Salvini is a smart man, definitely. And smart people must always produce smart ideas. But these ideas must be always based on principles, vision, and the sense of duty. What do we say today? Me, as a European politician, I believe that it is our duty to uphold the European project strengthen more the links between our people our citizens and better protect what you during in the last 60 years. Uh, some politicians believe that they're going back to national policies. But it doesn't work. The world has changed. Whether we want to admit it or not, we live in a globalized world and our life is becoming more homogeneous without betraying our roots and our traditions. Italians are very proud people. Me as a Greek. And the same. And everybody in Europe, but as I said before, we can be at the same time Europeans and patriots. So, it is very important for some leaders to make it clear in their mind. What do they want to serve? Because so far all these proposals coming from political leaders, they do not help me to open a new way in order to address these issues. They just refuse. They reject. The most important and the most difficult is to propose, because all these ideas floating around, yes, they attract the attention of the citizens because they say nice things, but this simplistic approach of trying to solve problems lead to the opposite direction.
0: Having followed politics in Australia over the last 17 years, once you get into these messy migration politics, it's very hard to escape them. And Australia developed a model of returning people expensively back to these third countries. And when I first asked back in 2015, are we headed to an Australian model? I got spokespeople from the commission were saying, no, how dare you say it will never do the Australian model. So tell me, have we adopted some of the Australian model? Or how you, do you describe dealing with regimes like the new government yes, in Libya?
1: I'll be very proud with you. There are some similarities, but there are many differences. Australia is a big island. Australia is not confronted with the same, let's say, phenomenon of migration. Australia had and has one of the most efficient migration systems. Nobody can go to Australia if he or she does not follow a legal pathway. But, as I said, there are many differences. Europe is confronted with other kind of crisis, Instability that stretches from Ukraine to Tunisia chaotic situation in countries like Libya, where the situation got even worse uh, right now. You see what happened in the Middle East, but also on the so-called Eastern Front. uh, You see what's happening in uh, countries like Ukraine and and the others. So, it is not the same. Returns have to take place definitely. That's why we have beefed up the role of uh, the European Borders and Coast Guard and very soon next week I'm going to present a new proposal of how this new agency that is going to be transformed to a genuine border police uh, can have also in its responsibilities the mandate to return people. But the ones who are in need of protection will have it. Europe will never become a fortress. It cannot become.
0: Uh, what can we do in places like Libya to make sure that it's not some kind of prison or some kind of human rights abuse that we're returning people to? Can you support people in Libya? It
1: is a duty of the international community to find a solution on that and to support uh, Libya. But who is our interlocutor in Libya? I want again to be frank with you. We have recognized I mean, the United Nations, the European Union, uh, the governor of President Saras. But uh, he's very weak, sort to say that. Uh, he has full control of only a slice of Libya on the coastline. The rest of the country is in the hands of scrupulous smugglers uh, and militia. And the eastern part uh, is under the control of General Aftar, who seems to be very powerful, but there is no dialogue between them. And it's the, the responsibility of their leadership to find a solution to recreate conditions of national unity in this country. As long as the situation is as it is now, Libya would be an open corridor for the ones who come to the shores of the Mediterranean, and there is the problem. How can you set up, let's say, a controlled center in Libya? Who is going to run it? We have been supporting the Libyan authorities during the last year. Italy has played a very positive role on that, uh, providing them with the necessary equipment, supporting the coast guard, but is there a stable interlocutor there? So instability is the main cause of the situation in this country. And then we go to the sub-Saharan area. We have been discussing this issue with the governments of these countries. What has surprised me, because it's an open and frank discussion, is that some of their leaders, they don't want to take back their own nationals. You're from Australia. If an Australian disappears uh, somewhere in the world, the whole system will be mobilized to find him.
0: If they're a person that is not an enemy of the government, maybe some people are running from persecution.
1: Yes, maybe some of them, but it's very important for us to know that they want to flee persecution, dictatorship, fear, whatever. Uh, So it's very very important to set up control centers in Europe for the ones who come here. But when we say uh, control centers, we do not mean a sort of concentration camp. No, they have to be treated in a dignified way, but they have also to understand that if they are not selected as political refugees, they will have to go back home. It is true to say that in the beginning it was a very complicated situation, but now the situation is more clear. That's why we have to build on what we have achieved. And this is the message I would like to send through this discussion we have today to the leaders of all these governments who oppose without explaining exactly why do they oppose to our policy. That uh, the only way to move forward is, to yes, to improve, to do more, but on the lines we have adopted, through this comprehensive policy during the last three years and we can see as i said before the very first tangible results
0: we know from the Eurobarometer that security and migration are the top two issues voters say they're worried about in europe at the moment so as We move into that election season, people campaigning to run the commission, become MEPs. You might even see someone like Salvini put himself forward as well. Do you have a message for voters or will you get involved in the election to explain?
1: Yes, I would tell the voters, put pressure on your leaders. The leaders are there to lead, but voters are there to show them the way to follow. So how can it be done practically? This interactive relation between citizens and leaders should be more sincere and more frank. And the other thing, do not listen to the ones who say nice and simple things. It has happened before in our history and it led Europe to the abyss. Democracy works here, democratic values have prevailed and the basic principles and values upon which Europe is built are still alive. And our duty, and our duty, as part of the political leadership of the European Union, at all levels, uh, I think there is only one way that we can follow, move forward. Europe forward, to complete the European project, adopt uh, federal type policies on uh, migration, on security, on foreign policy, on defense. Europe can survive only if it is united.
0: Now, Commissioner, you're a political animal with a lot of ideas and a lot of experience. A good political animal. (laughs) So, what are your plans in 2019 as we get into the phase of a new commission and presumably a Greek election as well?
1: We're going to leave thrilling moments till the next European elections. As far as I'm concerned, um, I was lucky to be designated commissioner responsible for security and migration. I could never believe in my life that I would have lived this great experience. But I won't be frank with you, Ryan. My heart and my mind is uh, going back home, is leading back home. I don't know what uh, uh, will be my next steps. You see, from the very beginning of my political career, whatever I was doing, it was determined by a code of Talleyrand. Can I say that in French? You can. Je me mets à la disposition des événements. I put myself at the disposal of the events. Because whenever politicians make plans, somewhere, God is smiling.
0: Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us.
1: The pleasure of mine to be with you.
0: That was the European Commissioner for Migration, Citizenship and Home Affairs, Commissioner Avramopoulos. And in a moment, we'll hear from our Brussels podcast panel.
1: Government relies on innovation. Innovation relies on us. 5G enables big ideas, and we enable 5G. It starts with Qualcomm.
0: And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust for what promises to be a very meaty discussion today. Sorry, vegans. Uh, hi, Alva.
2: Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva.
0: Let's dive into a very familiar topic. It is the topic of Martin Selmayr and his controversial double promotion, I think we have to talk about that because the EU Ombudsman has said that the entire College of Commissioners was guilty on four counts of maladministration. Now, these are not criminal charges, but what is significant about it is it's really the first time the entire college has been slammed like that since the entire college had to resign in 1999 over another ethical scandal. And I want to put it out there very briefly. I just found it so strange that we had Commissioner Ertinger in his official reply on behalf of the commission say that they've got more documents to kind of prove the commission side and they'll release them in due course. I'm like man, due course was when The ombudsman turned up and raided your office. That's when you should have handed the documents over. And then on stage with me yesterday, he essentially said that he didn't agree with the system, that Juncker should have been allowed to pick Selmayr on his own for that position, and that Selmayr is so detested in so many places that implicitly he wouldn't have got it if they'd done it any other way.
2: I think it is brilliant that we have someone like Emily O'Reilly to look into these kind of things. The European ombudsman is a great I suppose, EU institution. And I think she's been very strong on this point, knowing that she probably has the support of the European Parliament, who have also been very, very critical of the way he was appointed. I don't really think anything that the Commission says now can defend the process. It's clear that there was you know, personal interest in having him appointed to that position and that there seems to have been strange anomalies around how he was appointed as well. I thought one of the funnier things was that when the commission came back, one of the lines in the report was that in responding to criticism that they had been defensive, evasive and combative. And they were saying, I don't even know how that could be possible in English or French. But of course, they were defensive initially then evasive and then combative so maybe they weren't all of those things at the same time but it just goes to show that this is absolutely not the way that you deal with accusations of impropriety
3: it's an interesting moment because we're just around the European elections with a new commission, with lots of external threats to Europe, and everyone is doubting the future of the European project. So, And this story didn't only take the dimension of the European. Most of the media is talking about it. The worldwide is talking about it. So what sort of... Um, a legacy this commission is leaving behind, whether from internal matters, transparency procedures that neither the citizens, neither the MEPs, neither even the 32,000 functionnaires of the commission are able to see what is the right procedure. They owe it to their own people. They owe it to the world. And even if he's the most competent man in this position, I believe with this scandal and with this defensive, offensive, untransparent way the commission is handling it, put him into doubt. And And I wonder what will he do after that career-wise? Uh, he's marked forever.
0: I do think it's so strange that given his obvious skills and talents, that you would shoot yourself in the foot in this way to to do it this way. And it just raises so many questions about if this is how you solve this problem, how is it that they go about solving other problems? The meta discussion there is taboos being broken in how politics is conducted in Europe, be that whether you are going to have a German running the commission, be it the potential breaking up of old party alliances or questioning of systems like how the commission president is chosen. So maybe let's sort of segue into that now. We've got People challenging the Spitzenkandidat process. So yes, you have a man, Manfred Weber, who has no executive experience of government whatsoever, who is in the poll position to become the largest party in Europe's candidate for commission president. You have Emmanuel Macron's on-marsh movement saying they're not gonna support that system at all. And then you have, for the first time, someone like Matteo Salvini, who seems like he could have some broad cross-cutting appeal, some political momentum to set up some anti-EU front. And if all things went well, they could come second or first in the European elections. So maybe let's survey that scene a little bit. Lena, how do you think this election is shaping up?
3: <laughs> Very interesting moment for Europe. The world is watching. What will happen and who are the future candidates and how the Europeans among themselves now into this contradiction of we want to enlarge, we want to have more countries, we want to move forward with the European project. But yet again, we cannot agree among ourselves on the future politics and the future candidate. I don't think that President Macron will be able to have this majority and people behind him at this election. So this is the
0: idea that he wants to set up a progressive front. You know, he's not going to join the liberals, but he wants to arrange some common platform among the parties and conduct the election that way. So as a real pro-EU versus anti-EU.
3: Yes, but the thing is that as well in his own country he's facing lots of crises. so as well when you want to be credible and when you want to go outside of your own country and have more majority for you you need to have your bilan clear and you have succeeded in changing your own internal politics before you just go out and start gathering people around you I think it's a great time because he started this discussion he's starting this thinking of the different conversation for the Europeans but I don't think there will be any time
2: In some ways, I really like the idea of having a pro-European political front, because I think, I mean, it's also my failure and people that are my friends and I know well um, who are also pro-European. But we have failed to put together a properly articulated, convincing pro-European argument, even since Brexit. And that to me is one of the biggest failures of progressive Europe. And I think that Macron could do something like that. The only thing that's standing in his way, of course, is that this is an election and people need to be voted on. And the people who uh, apparently uh, recently in a story I read, the idea is that you leave behind your political badges and, you know, you fight for Europe and that's the idea behind this platform. Of course, that's a very hard sell because, you know, the S&D, Aldi, EPP are all going up against each other. But I do think there is room for us all to put together a message that Europe is important for the future. And I think that some of this everybody always talks about how the European elections aren't really that important. They actually just mirror national politics. But I think this time around, it will be different because we have more of a conversation around Europe happening since Brexit. And we also have people like Salvini and Orbán talking about what they want their vision for Europe to be. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. And I, I really look forward to seeing how he would be able to bring people together like that.
0: I think where the cynic in me is going to come in here is that in principle that's a very attractive idea but a lot of people will say well why does macron want to do that it's not just because he believes in these ideas it's because he didn't organize his own european wide party in time for any of the funding and registration deadlines and he's not in the driving seat when it comes to the spitzen candidate process because the epp is the biggest party so his best way to have more control over europe is to do exactly what has been suggested here by keeping everyone away from the existing systems, forcing everyone to drop their existing allegiances, and then unite behind a pro-EU front that he is the obvious charismatic person to lead. So there's a lot of attractive things about that idea, but in a sense there's also a conflict of interest because it's the thing that gives Emmanuel Macron what he wants and everyone else will start saying, well, why can't we have what we want? Why, why have all of the things we built up suddenly not counted? And, and you have someone like Manfred Weber who seems to come in now and say, well, actually, the fact that I'm not one of these ordinary politicians, you know, I'm the closest thing Germany has to a young person who could <laughs> compete to like Sebastian Kurz or whatever. He's like, I still live in the village I grew up in. I'm an ordinary guy. I'm not like the others. Let me lead Europe. You know, that, 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 that's his pitch to come in and, and run the show.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is a very unbelievable idea around Manfred Weber. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to unite people around it. But I do think that the other side, um, Eurosceptics are much better at coming together um, to form a narrative around why the EU is a villain why they are to blame for migration, etc. And there needs to be something. There needs to be a way of coming together to battle against that, because otherwise we are going to lose that battle.
3: Yes. And then we will have somebody like President Weber, the very close to Orban and very close to the Austrians, and they understand each other. And let's say he didn't take any questions after his announcement, no? So that would have been really interesting as well, how he perceives democracy in Europe.
0: That gives us a lot to chew over as we head into the State of the Union speech next week. I think that Juncker is going to possibly be between two seats again, where he doesn't really have the power and the authority to use that platform that is being offered to him. And he's not going to get the support of having this in primetime or on TV networks and things like that. So I think we're going to have a muddled through State of the Union next week. But there does promise to be some news around migration, for example, that Commissioner Avramopoulos has just previewed to us. So, Lena Alva, thank you so much for joining us once again. See you next time. See you next thank time. You. Thanks for listening to EU Confidential. If you haven't joined our community yet, you can go to politico.eu forward slash registration, tick the EU Confidential box, and we'll deliver the podcast to you each week and invite you to any podcast-related events. Podcasting is a team effort, so a big thank you to Andrew Gray and Wei On Lin.